Amen. Uh, as you grab a seat, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, we're going to keep going in 2 Timothy this morning, chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. Um, before we start there, though, uh, I do want to say, for those of you that weren't here in the Sunday school hour or you haven't heard us talking for the last, I don't know, two three months. Uh, we have guests with us this morning from Thompson Station Church and from Thompson Station, Tennessee. Um, they are here this week to help us with some backyard Bible clubs in South Libby and in Libby uh, starting tomorrow morning. And so uh, we would ask you to, first of all, uh, tag in and, uh, and volunteer alongside of them, but also uh, continue to pray for what God is going to do uh, this week uh, in the lives of kids and families in Libby. Um, and to those of you from TSC, again, just thank you for coming and joining with us. We're excited for what God has in store this week. Um, so 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. Uh, so far in 2 Timothy, if we just give you a quick 30,000-foot uh, overview, recap of where we've been. Paul, uh, probably uh, the greatest missionary throughout all of time, right? Uh, the first missionary that goes to the Gentiles, uh, begins churches throughout Asia. Uh, he is writing to his protege or a guy who has, has been a co-laborer with him, a co-missionary with him. Uh, Timothy, who he has left behind and, 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 and told him to stay in Ephesus. So if you think about the letter to the Ephesian church, that's a church in Asia Minor. Paul had been there three years. He leaves Timothy behind in order to make sure that the church continues to be well established and cared for uh, so that elders can be appointed there. Uh, and in the, the, the highlight of probably what we've talked about the last three weeks of we've been entering into 2 Timothy is Paul is encouraging Timothy to stay focused in his labor for the gospel even as persecution comes. So Paul is writing from prison. And, in, and the reason why he is in prison is because he says, I, I'm here and I'm bound because I'm a, a, a messenger of the gospel. Basically, I'm in prison because of Jesus. So, Timothy, share in suffering with me. You ought to do the same kind of suffering because you have a shared faith in Jesus. This is what is coming, but as it comes towards you, stay focused and continue to be diligent in teaching others the truth of who Jesus is. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19, the overarching part of it is it's mostly negative. And, I, and what I say that is he's mostly giving a negative uh, command to Timothy, don't do this. But there are, are two positive encouragements that are, that are tagged into this as well. Uh, so what we're going to look at today is Paul's continuing to encourage Timothy, and by extension, he's encouraging the church to stay focused on the gospel in a world full of distractions. I don't know if that sounds or rings true to you in the world that we live in. There, there's a few distractions as soon as we walk out the door. Or as soon as we sit down and we get ready to worship. Uh, we live in a world of distractions, and yet what Paul is going to tell Timothy in, in, in 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 19, carries directly over not just to Timothy in the first century, but to every church in every time, in every place. So if you're there with me, we'll start in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 14. It should be on screen for you if you're following along that way. Paul writes, Remind them... Of these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, 
rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. As we start, just as we walk through, the very first thing he says is remind them. That would probably be a good spot to define, like, well, who's them? Right? So Paul is writing to Timothy, an individual, but we're right again reminded that this isn't just information for Timothy. Right? This isn't just good encouragement for Timothy of how to stay focused and how to continue to labor towards faithfulness in Christ. It's also to be shared with others. In chapter 2, verse 2, he, he, he commanded Timothy to take what he had heard from Paul and entrust it to others who would be able to teach it to others, who would be able to teach it to others, who would be able to teach it to others. And I'm going to run out of breath, so you get the picture. Teach it to others. And so the idea here is, is Paul is telling Timothy, remind not just these faithful people, but the church in Ephesus. Remind whoever you talk to that is in the Lord. Remind them of these things. And so then the next question would be like, what things? These things, that's, that's pretty broad. If we just go right back up to the last couple verses, though, it could be all of Paul's teaching. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, right? All of that, remind all of them about all that I have taught you. It could also be he has just given this really simple view of the gospel in verses 11 through 13. When he says, the saying is trustworthy for, if we have died with Jesus, we will also live with Jesus. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. So you have this really simple thing in the gospel, right? If, if we die with Jesus, we are promised to be raised with him. If we endure with him, he says we will reign with him, right? And even in our fledgling faith, it is not always perfect. It says if we are faithless, he remains faithful. But to the one who disowns and has nothing to do with him, they will also expect not to be recognized on that day when Jesus calls his own to himself, right? It's a scary thought. But the bigger picture here is remind them of these things that if we are faithless, he remains faithful, that God is faithfully taking care of his people as they experience hardship. Remember, Paul is saying, I'm in prison for preaching the gospel, but Jesus is faithful. God's word is not bound, even though I'm sitting here in shackles, right? He had just said this, I'm shackled, and yet what? The gospel isn't bound. It continues to do its work. So remind them of these things. Even as difficulty is quickly approaching them. They're getting to a place where the Roman Empire is about to do like a, a system-wide or government-wide persecution of the church. And Paul is telling the church, get ready to stand firm. Now, does the church in every time and in every place need to hear that same thing? There are things coming. Stand firm and stay focused. On what? On who? On Jesus. On the basics of the gospel. Don't get sideswiped. And that's exactly what he's going to talk about here in just a minute. He says, so charge them before God. In other words, Paul is saying, when he says charge them before God, he's like, this is not just Paul's opinion. He's saying, charge them before the one whom they are accountable to. This is the Lord's message. So it is to the Lord that they are to be commanded and they are 
encouraged to be faithful. Not just to be encouraged to be faithful to Paul, but to be faithful to the Lord. Notice what he says. Remind them of these things and charge them before God to do what or what not to do. Not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Now, it sounds like a, that's, a, that's a pretty pretty broad statement, right? Don't quarrel about words. But he continues to flesh this out in verse 16 when he says, but avoid irreverent babble. The other way we could say this is avoid useless chatter, pointless, empty talk, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. So the ruin that Paul sees here is an increasing level of ungodliness. That's still kind of vague, though, isn't it? Like what, what, like, what kind of language or what kind of talk is Paul really getting at? What is irreverent babble? What's in empty chatter? What is quarreling words? Like, what is he talking about? And I think he hits on it in verse 15 in a roundabout way. In this positive encouragement, at the tail end of it, we're going we're gonna to look at the first part of verse 15 in a minute. But he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, and then notice this, rightly handling the word of truth. So the discussion is centered around Timothy's use or faithfulness in handling God's word. And what Paul is discouraging Timothy from doing is engaging in either a wrong handling of God's word or conversations that make less of God's word than what it is. And you can see that in, in, in the increasing level of ungodliness that he talks about that's going to come to these people. But what's interesting is when he says it ruins the hearers, I don't normally tell you what Greek words are because it really doesn't make any matter to any of us most of the time, right? You're like, oh, cool, that's a Greek word. It's still Greek to me. But the Greek word that's used in ruin, now I'm going I'm to say it in my best Greek and see if you can figure out what English word corresponds to this. Katastrophe. So get this, he says, don't quarrel about words which does no good, but only brings catastrophe to the hearers. So Paul's not just talking about something that's not just, it's just not valuable, it's it's just not important, it could be discarded and it's not important. He is talking about something that shipwrecks the person who engages in it, that it brings destruction on them. Like That's a little bit more forceful than, don't engage in pointless conversation, right? And, and why? Because it brings catastrophe. So then the question is, maybe the logical next step off of this would, would be, if, if, if we if we're have handling the word of truth rightly in one hand and irreverent talk or quarreling that leads to catastrophe on the other hand, summarize this by saying it's untruth versus truth, Does untruth really ruin people's lives? Does a false, it's kind of an oxymoron to say a false truth, but does a false truth really destroy somebody's life? Because in our current age, where we live, what we hear, and what we sometimes might even think is, actually probably the adage of our age is, live your truth. Live what is true for you. In other words, however you define truth, let that guide you. That is, the if there was a mantra of our age, is that not it? Whatever is true for you, do that. 
And so the question is, it does that type of thinking bring destruction, catastrophe, ruin to the people who embrace it? When truth is what you want it to be, is it catastrophic? And I'll just tell you two major untruths that are, are, are key in our age. Two major untruths. And, and I just ask the question, do these things bring ruin or catastrophe? It's just a clump of cells. It's not a life. Does that major untruth bring ruin or catastrophe to those who embrace it? Or to those who are affected by it? When a life is snuffed out over an untruth, is that not catastrophic? When the person who embraces that carries with them a lifetime of shame and guilt, is that not catastrophic to them? It's not just merely neutral. Another major untruth that is, is, I would say it's outside of Montana, but it's it's here. It's everywhere. Gender is fluid. You can change who you were born to be if it doesn't align with who you feel you are? Does that not bring catastrophe to the one who embraces it? When we have those who are advocating for the butchering of children's bodies in order for them to live their truth, is that not catastrophic? And these are just two major issues, but how many other ways does untruth play out all around us? In the ways that people want things to be true because they feel them to be true. And so there's this, there's this, there's this, all of a sudden there's like, oh, that's, that's probably some wisdom uh, in, in sticking to the word rightly divided rather than getting off in the weeds of discussions that don't lead to anything and are really empty and worthless when they're compared to the truth of who God is and the truth of what he has said. What about untruths that are said about God and his character? Do those bring ruin and catastrophe to the people who embrace them? To the person who says there is no God to whom I am accountable, does that bring destruction and catastrophe to them? We might say, well, maybe not immediately, but we, but if we believe God's word to be true, we say there is coming a day when that will be absolutely ruinous to them. Not just for this life, but for the life to come that does not end. And you see this heightened then when he says it leads to more and more a heaping up, a welling up of ungodliness. If we could say that another way, it's moving people farther and farther and farther away from the truth of who God is and the truth of his word. So the conversations that lead away from the truth of who God is and lead to the truth of what we want to be true, Paul says avoid these things. And notice what he says. He says it's not neutral. It spreads like gangrene. I'm not, I'm not really a nurse. Um, I was about to make a joke. I'm a doctor. And Ezra, Ezra's not here. Ezra's not here. Uh, I have to tell you this. I don't know if I told you this yet. So uh, I just got my doctor, and, and Ezra, our fi- our, he's seven. Um, he says, you're not a real doctor because you don't give medicine. And I was like, touche. So anyway, it still has nothing to do with gangrene. Nothing to do with gangrene. But, if you go back and you look at, you know, like the, the, all of the fun before modern medicine and, and warfare and the, and the injuries that took place in, uh, in battle and 
one of the biggest issues was gangrene, right? Like it gets infected and it spreads. It doesn't stay in one spot. And so, so the lie or one of the untruths that we would hear from our culture is that it, it doesn't affect you, so why do you care? Because the effect of it is not like the untruth, false truth is not meant to just be my truth that is mine in a silo and it doesn't affect anyone else. It has a creeping effect to bring more and more people into the lie. And if the disaster is ruinous and catastrophe, you can just get this picture. It's this creeping and spreading catastrophe. And Paul says, have nothing to do with it. Charge them before the Lord. Stay away from it. Don't dabble in it. Don't, don't engage in it. Don't see how far you can go with it. He says, avoid it, but you... Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved or tested. Somebody who has no need to be ashamed, which is another major theme we've been looking at in 2 Timothy. Paul says, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. But I am not ashamed because I know whom I believed in and I know that he is able, I'm convinced that he is able to keep unto me that which he, like the good deposit that he has put in me, he's able to keep that. Right? There's this major theme of, of shame or not being ashamed of the gospel. And here again he says, you could be a, like, do your best to be a worker who has no need to be ashamed of his work before the master. So we, we look at this and go, what, are, what is life to look like in contrast to the irreverent babble, the quarreling about words, the endless discussions, the things that increase in, in ungodliness? What are we to aim for? And there's really just really three, three things right there. Lives that have been, we, we ought to aim for lives that have been tested and reflect the grace and faithfulness of Jesus. Right? Like, we're not to aim for lives that are free of trouble, but we are to aim for lives that when troubles come, we have shown through our faith response in Jesus that he is worthy of all that we have. Those who are, we stand approved or presenting ourselves to God. Think of the picture of that. Presenting yourself to the Lord. Freely coming and assembling before him, laying all to bear. And in that moment of him seeing and knowing all that we are and and all that we have done, being unashamed because of our lives hidden in him. And, And hear me on this. The only way. The only way that is possible is if Jesus has done for us what he has promised to do for us. That is only possible if we go back to chapter 2 and verse 1, if we are strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. If we have passed from death to life and now our lives are hidden in the righteousness of Jesus. That's the only way we can stand before a holy God unashamed. But it doesn't mean that we enter into salvation and then we just sit back and go, it's my life is now done. Jesus, I'm unashamed. I wear your righteousness, right? It plays out in a response that is lived in faithfulness because he is faithful. So lives that are unashamed of Jesus, the gospel, or our response to him. One of the ways that this is highlighted is rightly handling the word of truth. In chapter 1, verse 13, he had told Timothy already, follow the sound pattern. Right? Stick to the sound teaching that you've heard from me. 
In chapter 2, verse 2, it was, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to trust uh, to teach others also. Continue to rightly handle the word that has been entrusted to you. The idea of rightly dividing or rightly handling carries the weight of, uh, of cutting a straight path or sticking to a straight path. So you think about this, God's word has clear cut a straight path for you and I to walk alongside of. And God's word is also the means by which we continue to walk that path that God has already hewn out. This is rightly walk in this. You take this right alongside of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus, when, when, when speaking, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Think about Jesus' words. Think about Paul's words. Enter the narrow gate. Go the hard way. Think about this, this language throughout all of Scripture to the one who endures, to the one who stays focused, to the one who stands firm. It's not an easy path. There are lots of pressures that would that, that seem insignificant. Well, if I just give on that, the pressure releases and life is a little bit easier. And yet what Jesus would say and what Paul would say is, don't take the easy way out. Stick to the firm foundation. Avoid the easy gate. Avoid the useless way that leads to destruction, that leads to catastrophe. And the temptation that's highlighted here. And I think it's more tempting than we, we would say. Like from, from, from 30,000 feet, it sounds simple. In practice, it's much more difficult. But the temptation is to adopt views or beliefs that protect against shame from people. To adopt views or beliefs that avoid the blowback from other people around us. To keep the peace so we, we go, well, that's, that's not really what we believe. That's not really, that's, like, that's not fully what God's word says. And we just kind of, in order to avoid the shame of people. And so the big question for you and for me in our lives, as Paul lays it out, Will I be ashamed of the gospel, or will I be shamed by people? Ultimately, there's shame. There's shame somewhere. If we stick with the Lord, there's shame from people. If we stick with people, we're ashamed of the Lord. For you and for me, where will our shame lie? And another question that we can just follow up right off of that is, what if by pleasing people... I am contributing to their ruin. By shrinking back from the full truth of God's word, is my attempt to please people actually contributing to their spiritual ruin and destruction? And again, we we look at this, falsehoods or wrong beliefs are not neutral. It's always looking to take ground. It's always looking to ruin right faith. It's always looking for the easy inroads. And so when, what Paul is encouraging Timothy and the church is, 
stand firm. He gives two examples right after this of, of two individuals who have, who have adopted the irreverent babble, the, the, the quarreling about words. It says, Hymenaeus and Philetus have sweared, sweared from the truth. They're among those who have believed these things. And the specific thing that they are teaching is that the resurrection has already happened. Now, Hymenaeus, this is the second time he's listed in, in, in Paul's letters. The first time was actually in 1 Timothy. He's one of the individuals, remember that Paul said, I've handed them over to Satan, right? In, in chapter 1, verse 20 of 1 Timothy. He says, and the prayer is that it will, like, in, in, in distancing or putting away their false teaching, that they will come back to a right faith. But now he lists him, and the specific thing that he is teaching that is shipwrecking faith among God's people. And you notice the language of it is they've swerved from truth. Like they've taken a hard course correction away from truth, adopting something else. And they're, 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 the, the teaching, you go, that, that doesn't seem like that major of a teaching. That The resurrection has already happened. They, like, they still apparently still believe that Jesus is the way of salvation. They still apparently believe in the grace of God that's been poured out in Jesus, but they say the resurrection's already happened. Like, what's the, like that's just a minor detail. And yet he says they have swerved. And it's destroying people. You know, why is it destroying people? Because what they're teaching is not just that Jesus has already been raised from the dead, but they're also saying that the final resurrection that you and I are ultimately looking forward to in Jesus has already taken place. So in other words, like this is the best it's ever going to be. And the resurrection is only spiritual. So think about this for a people who are in the midst of persecution. You would just say, like, what are you looking forward to and Why? The best stuff has already happened in the rear view. You're suffering for nothing. Can you imagine if that gets to become widely adopted throughout God's people among his churches and they begin to go, I guess we have believed in vain. I guess, they like, why are we doing this? Why, why is Paul in prison if the resurrection's already taking place? Like, we could distance ourselves from Paul and say the resurrection's already happened and we don't get any blowback at all. So why endure hardship over this truth? But I'd ask the question, if the resurrection is already, already taking place, where is the victory over sin and death? Like, right now on this side of salvation, but on, like, on this side of salvation, but on this side of heaven, in the gap, is life perfect for you? Are all things made new the way that God has promised yet? Have the new heavens and the new earth been created yet? As the trumpet sound, as he returned and gathered his people to himself, and as he brought judgment on the, the living and the dead. I, when we see the world turned upside down and you go, where is hope? Hope is coming. Well, no, it's not, because he's already, he, this, is, this is all it is. Think about how horrible of an existence that would be without hope. And there are those that are teaching it. In our day, there would be some that say it doesn't really matter whether Jesus was actually raised from the dead or not. They say Jesus is just kind of the moral example of how we ought to live our lives. That's what we ought to look for. But again, I ask the question, well, then where's the hope? There is no hope if Jesus remained in the grave. If there's no resurrection or the resurrection is already taking place, there's no hope for you and for me. But as it is, notice what Paul says very next. He, doesn't, he says they're upsetting the faith of some in these words. But then he says, but God's firm foundation stands. Bearing the seal, the Lord knows those who are his. 
And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That first phrase, the the firm foundation of God's uh, stands, echoes Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16. When this was yet a promise of the Messiah who would come. But he says, behold, the Lord speaking to his people. He says, behold, I am the one who has laid or is laying a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation, and whoever believes will not be in haste. Or the the Christian Standard Bible says, whoever believes will not be shaken. In 2 Timothy, he says, this firm foundation stands in place. So in Isaiah chapter 28, 2 Timothy chapter 2, what is the foundation? It's the person of Jesus. It's the person and work of Jesus. He's the firm foundation upon which everything is built. And Paul says, in the midst of trouble that is coming, in the, tr- in the midst of things seemingly being shaken, God's foundation is intact. It's not in question. It's not at risk. It stands firm. It is capable of standing firm. And then this incredible promise, the Lord knows those who are his. Think about the, 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 the truth that counters the lie that the resurrection has already taken place and it seems like maybe Jesus has just forgotten you. And Paul counters that with, the Lord knows his people. If you belong to him, he knows you. He sees you. He's not forgotten you. He's not abandoned you. He knows you by name. He is seated, like right, in, in verse 11 and 12. If, he's, if you've died with him, you will live with him. If you endure, you will reign with him. If you're faithless, he is faithful. Why? Because he knows his people. Right? Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and, and they know me. And they come to me and I don't lose my sheep. Because he is the good shepherd. In other words, what Paul is saying is, if the Lord knows his people, his people, even as they undergo persecution, even as they go, undergo the shame of, of, of other people walking away from them or departing from them, the truth of the matter is, Jesus won't put them to shame. But he knows them, he remembers them, he holds them, he keeps them, he has sealed them, he will see it to completion. Yeah, that's an incredible, deeply rooted promise for God's people. Therefore, you might say, the the next phrase, if God knows those who are his and he's capable of holding them, and by the grace of Jesus he's brought them to salvation, by the grace of Jesus he holds them until it is completed on his return or their death and their, their, their being with him, then what? Then in the midst of this, let everyone who names him leave sin and pursue him in right faith. Respond continually to the gospel. Eyes trained and focused on Jesus in the world full of distractions. Rightly dividing truth because it matters. Because our hope is secure in him and there are yet people who need to know him. 
Your right handling of the word. You're cutting a straight path and sticking with God's word in the midst of a culture that does not recognize him or does not know him is bringing life where ruin ought to reign. Right? Where, where ruin and catastrophe and destruction ought to come, the right word of God brings life and hope and restoration and grace and life. So the question that we would close on this morning is, where's our focus? Are our eyes set on all of the distractions? Or are our eyes firmly planted on the author and sustainer of our salvation? And maybe this morning, like you never heard any of this before, and you go, okay, that's not making a whole lot of sense. I don't really know that I have that many distractions or what I am pursuing is really leading to ruin. I feel like I'm doing my best and I feel like I'm doing okay in this. The truth of the matter is that God is holy, which means that he is without any kind of blemish whatsoever. He's perfect in all of his ways. He's perfectly just, he's perfectly good, he's perfectly loving, perfect in everything he does. And as soon as we say this is the standard of who God is, if we're being honest with ourselves, we go... Okay, I'm not perfect. I'm trying hard, but I'm not perfect. So I think I'm still doing okay. But the problem is, is if he is absolutely perfect, and he has an absolutely perfect standard of holiness for you and for me, and we were created to know him and to walk with him, our imperfection and our sin has already brought ruin. It's not something that we are looking forward to. It is something that we are currently sitting in, whether we realize it or not. And the only way out of this destruction, this catastrophe, is not by us trying to try harder or to do better or to live a different truth that is still not God's truth. The only way out of our situation is if we believe that God has made a way out and he sent his son Jesus to take all of our imperfection on himself. Though he was perfect in every way, he died because we're not perfect. He died because we can't do all the things that God requires. And he died in our place. So he, he, if you imagine it as a set of clothes, he took and put on our dirty clothes and gave us a brand new set that never gets dirty for those who receive him. So the question is, in light of that, is not just where is your focus, but whose clothes are you wearing? Are you wearing yours? Or are you wearing those provided to you through the grace of Jesus. And the amazing news about this is that, that when, right up there again in verse 11, the promise is, is if we have died with him, if our sin is dead with Jesus, the promise of Scripture is that we will also live with him. He brings new life now, but he will bring a new creation later that is absent of all of the things that we see wrong. All the health problems that we see, gone. All the economic problems we see, gone. All the relational problems that we have, gone. All the climate issues that we have, gone. All of the whatever issues we have, gone. All of the inter, uh, inter-country issues that we have, gone, because there's only one kingdom that stands. So for those of you that, that do know this grace 
in Jesus through faith. Stand firm because he will see it through to completion. If you're not yet placing your faith in Jesus, first of all, one of my prayers is that you don't experience the ruin that Scripture promises. But the other thing is that you would realize that it is, it is a real, true ruin that awaits you if you do not know him. But by his grace, he is inviting each and every person to know him and to walk with him in a right relationship. To exchange false truths for the truth. To leave behind death and shame and guilt and pursue life and peace and joy in him. Doesn't mean that there's not still problems. Doesn't mean that there's not still struggles. Paul's writing to a church is about to go through some crazy amounts of, of persecution. And yet he says... The Lord knows those who are his. He is faithful. And if he is faithful, that's all that matters.